0: Hello, hello everyone, how are you today? My name is uh, David Winter. This is really loud, I don't know if that's uh, feedback, you're killing me. Um, I'm the uh, director of consulting services at a company called CloudAbility that specializes in cloud financial management. Today we're going to talk about something that we call financial agility. So we're not going to talk about reservations, we're not going to talk about right-sizing, We're going to talk about some of the observations that we've made in working with hundreds of enterprises and how they do day-to-day cloud financial management and the impact it's made to their organization. But kind of first, it's like, why would you listen to me, right? Um, So I started using AWS about back in 2012, um, building SaaS applications for startups uh, down in Austin, Texas. quickly figured out that uh, AWS was kind of the coming thing that's gonna impact change in, in, in our industry. And so what do you do when you figure that out? You go work for AWS, right? <laughs> so uh, after that, I spent about two years at Amazon Web Services uh, doing enterprise sales up and down the East Coast, working with very large organizations, those that are spending you know, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars you know, on IT budgets and millions and millions of dollars specifically on AWS. So I got a lot of insight into how they were operating and the challenges that they had adopting cloud, transforming their organizations, and and migrating. The last 18 months at AWS, I spent uh, working on a program called the Migration Acceleration Program. You might see some notes about that, different presentations uh, throughout the week. And what we were tackling was, how can we help the enterprise move large amounts of their workloads out of the data centers and into AWS? And during that time, most of what I spent doing, uh, and I found that I was really interested in, was business case development and financial modeling for cloud, right? So I spent 18 months doing that, and then I said, hey, listen, you know, there's a challenge in the enterprise is that this hasn't really been along. uh, Cloud financial management hasn't been around that long, and people don't know much about it, so it's challenging for them. And a pitfall that I observed enterprises running into is that the less they understood about something and when this something is cloud financial management, the simpler it seemed. And sometimes when things are simple, you take them for granted. Sometimes that bites you in the ass. So what I did was I came to cloudability and we started talking about how how can we build a process around cloud financial management? It's just so new. How can we build some intellectual property on what the challenges are and how to address them for the enterprises? It's no one's fault that Cloud financial management is a challenge right now. It's just so new. It's not been going on for the last 25 years. It's been going on for the last six years. So when we break this down, cloud financial management, I think it's important for you to think about it in two ways. You think about cloud financial management from the perspective of strategy and then the perspective of execution. And when you're thinking about strategy, this is all the what if. What if we adopt 12 of the new things that Andy announced this morning? Right? How will that change our financial impact as related to our cloud spend? Right? What if we close the data center down and we migrated to AWS? What if we refactored this application into Lambda scripts? What if we adopted Aurora as our database? Right? How do you predict what that's going to be financially so that you can make an informed decision? The flip side of that is once you've built a strategy, built a business case, built a financial model, how do you actually execute against that? So I spent about 18 months building large-scale financial models for customers to say, hey, listen, hey, over the next four years, you can move 5,000 servers into AWS, and here's what it's going to look like as far as your costs, right? Here's a total cost of ownership comparison to what you have going on today. They'd be really, you know, really thankful, really great. They'd sign the deal. They'd move on. And then it's really challenging sometimes on the operational side to execute against the assumptions that you're building into that strategy, right? Everyone's going to buy the perfect amount of our eyes, No one's going to accidentally turn on services that are wasting money in the cloud, right? So that's the the side of execution that I want you guys to think about. So I'll start, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, the strategy. So when you're thinking about strategy, you've got to back into in your organization, what are you trying to achieve? So as I spoke to folks about uh, migration strategies, typically I found that there are two things that are really driving uh, their objectives. They were trying to find some level of business agility that was meaningful to their business, and that might be measured in how fast can we deploy features. It might be measured in uh, how effective uh, or how efficient are our developer teams. Can we open up uh, and address new markets, right, by increased uh, development? Then the other side of it was economic value. And I use the words economic value very specifically because it's not necessarily always cost savings, or cost avoidance. It's what are you getting for the value? How is it impacting your business and helping you achieve your goals? And there's a big slash down the middle here because it's always a balance, right? It's always a balance between what do you get out of the business agility side and what do you get out of the economic value? And so when you're trying to figure out for your specific company, you know, what's important to you, start from trying to understand the goals, right? Is your company trying to move into new markets? Are they trying to deliver new products? right? Are they? You know, is it a more tangible goal? Like, we've got a leak in our data center ceiling and we've got to get that data center closed down and moved out. Uh, very real scenario. Uh, did our data center provider call us up and say, hey, we're closing up shop because the cloud's putting us out of business, right? And you got to get 18 months to get all your stuff out. It happens. Merger and acquisition, right? You're acquiring companies. You want to integrate them to your system. You want to integrate them into your environment, right? Understand your goals because it's going to define how you go about balancing that economic value with that business agility to develop your business case, your strategy for migration to AWS. So carrying on with just this migration example of, of the what if and the strategy, I'm going to talk about three different patterns that you should consider when you're kind of developing your financial strategy uh, to help you make a decision for uh, you know migration. The three I'm going to talk about are rehosting, replatforming, and refactoring. Now, if you've seen any of the other migration uh, slideware that AWS has out there, there's three more, retain, retire, repurchase. I'm not going to talk about those today. Those have to do more with what you don't put in the cloud. There's pros and cons to each one of these that you've got to figure out, right? Rehosting, which is just lifting up a server, Windows server, Linux server, moving it into AWS, doing a little bit of right-sizing, hopefully, wrapping a nice reservation around it. It has pros and cons. It's cheap. Right? The cost of doing that is cheap. It's easy to image a machine, move it into the cloud, and turn it back on. Now, it's easy-ish uh, right? uh, as far as the, the effort level to do it, and it's fast. Right? There's plenty of partners out in the expo you should go visit right now that have, that have really programatized the ability to lift and shift workloads. And you can build a financial model where you can say it costs me exactly $400 per workload that I'm going to move into the cloud, and it takes exactly seven hours to move each server and from that, now I can build a timeline and a complete financial model. But the cons are it's the least amount of savings. You can trip, fall down, and you know, move, uh, lift and shift 5,000 servers in the cloud and save 25% pretty easily. Uh, it's also the least cool <laughs> as far as migration to cloud. Then you've got replatforming. Right? Now replatforming, or uh, as my friend Steve Orban likes to call it, lift and tinker, means you're moving things into the cloud, but you're trying to take advantage of maybe different services that Amazon has, like uh, hosted databases, uh, um, the big data solutions, different storage solutions to augment what you had on-premise. So this is great because it's a little bit newer technology sometimes. You can take advantage of upgrading operating systems, taking advantage of Amazon services that have better value than maybe rolling your own services. It drives culture change in your organization. Right, so less do-it-yourself, more focus on what's important to your business versus focusing on the backups for your database, right? Tends to offer a greater level of savings than pure lift and shift when you look at the total cost of ownership, right, on the cost to operate the application workloads as well as the cost on AWS, uh, which drives less future overhead. Takes a little bit longer, right? And uh, in this case, also, sometimes it drives culture change, which is a challenge. So sometimes culture change is a pro. Sometimes culture change is a con right? And it can cause more disruption. But you've got to weigh that if that value for you makes sense. Now, the coolest one is refactoring. And we can get a big philosophical debate on the difference between the word re-architecture and the word refactoring, but I'm just going to use refactoring today. The newest technology, right? Taking a mainframe and refactoring into a bunch of Lambda scripts, right? The dream refactoring job. Uh, Drives significant culture change in your organization. When you've seen the CIOs get up on stage, it reinvents to today and in the past and said, I saved 70% of my bill. It's because they spent the time to refactor applications into new architect- cloud-based architectures. Now the cons is it takes a little bit longer. Again, it's a it's more culture-changing organization that's challenging and it's disruption, but it's got a lot of value to it. Now the point of going through this, or like one more thing I wanna talk about real quick. Refactoring has also a unique challenge is that when you are rehosting, it's pretty easy to predict what your costs are going to be. And if it's not easy for you, we can help you out. When you're refactoring, it's kind of like predicting where a hurricane, and I know it's bad timing if the United States is talking about hurricanes, where a hurricane's going to land, how strong it's going to be. Uh, all we have to look at to try to predict that is historic weather patterns and all the hurricanes that have come before it. And as you're sitting down and helping your company build strategy on why refactoring might be a good methodology for you to adopt, you've got to be able to predict, well, when we're done, how much is it going to cost? And when we're done, based on how much is going to cost, how much are we going to save? And based on how much we're going to save and how much we invested in order to undertake this refactoring, when do we start seeing the return on investment for this? Right? And so it's a challenge. What you, what my advice... Look to your peers, right? Look to your proof of concepts and try to see the patterns that you've built uh, that have you moved onto AWS and observe the actual costs. Uh, we look at data, because we've been looking at data for cloud adoption for the last six years, and we try to match where the patterns of architecture you're planning to adopt in the cloud match patterns that we've actually observed over time over the last six years from all the customers we've been helping with cloud finances. And from that, we can kind of help look at where all these patterns con- you know, convene, right? Where they, all con- where they all converge on. And where all these patterns converge as far as refactored workloads is where you can make your bet on where your workload is going to cost operationally when you've completed it. Now, the trick for strategy here is you get, it's, there's no one solution that's going to make up your strategy. You're probably going to have some rehosting and a financial model related to that. You're going to have some applications in your portfolio that are going to benefit from replatforming, and it's going to benefit your overall objectives. And there's going to be ones that you're going to want to go in and refactor as well. Once you've built your strategy for cloud finance, for, for migration, or for even just a what if, right? What if we adopted, you know, Lambo. You're going to move at some point into operations, right? And more often than not, this is the day-to-day work that you're going to be doing for cloud financial management. So operations and execution kind of breaks down the challenge into uh, a couple table stakes things that you need. You need to be able to consume the financial data that you're generating from using AWS. And AWS makes this publicly available for you. If you've ever heard of the detailed billing record files or the, the, uh, the cloud usage resource files, all the data's in there. Uh, the trick then is how do you analyze and report on that data in a meaningful way to your business, right? Some customers have two, three sub-linked accounts with AWS, and some customers have two or 300 linked accounts in AWS with one-to-many relationships to the departments, with different financial responsible parties, with different technology responsible parties. And you've got to be able to take this financial data and present it in a way that those individuals can read it, consume it, understand it, and hopefully make great business decisions from using it. The challenge is also getting that data out to everyone, right? How do you get that data together? How do you cook that data? How do you present that data and slice and dice it, but get it out to those three hundred people so they can make those great decisions? So, if you know if you've looked at this before, you know the, the challenge here is kind of strange is interesting because if you've looked at a billing file before, there's are some of the most ugly things you've ever seen in your life, right? So, here's me just like texting out one of the Cloudability billing files, and I, I changed the account number so it's not real, so don't try to do anything. Uh, It's somebody's account number, just not ours. But this is the data that you've got to consume, that you've got to be able to slice and dice on a regular basis. You've got to be able to analyze and do some detective work, right? But you've got to make sure that you, as an organization, have the ability to understand and consume this data to make the decision. So this is where I'm going to give you some kind of helpful hints of what I've observed as a good process for analyzing your own internal capabilities, What you want to look at internally is you want to say, what pricing models and programs are we using, right? And this pricing models and programs I'm talking about, are you using on-demand, are you using spot, are you using reservations to the best of the ability, right? All these flexible pricing options that that the providers give you. How well are you leveraging automation and governance in your organization? If I gave everyone in the room access to my Amazon account, and let them do whatever they want, I've got absolutely no control over the cost that's going to come out of that. But if I build automation and orchestration, then I can prevent people from deploying redshift clusters in Singapore. right? I can prevent people from Bitcoin mining you know, on my accounts, and I can control what options they have, what options they use, and I can greatly reduce the drift in my predicted spend as a result of people you know, willy-nilly turning things on in cloud. Something that's that's, I think, overlooked quite often is is a deep understanding of your software licensing, right? There's a lot of Microsoft out there. There's a lot of paid operating systems out there, a lot of paid databases out there. And when you're thinking about your overall cloud financial strategy, you've gotta think about your software licensing position, your enterprise agreements with all these other third-party vendors, and where are you getting the best bang for your buck in leveraging those services on the cloud? Plenty of customers that I helped with strategy sessions and migrating to cloud we're shedding these operating system costs and shedding these these, uh, database costs as part of the overall value proposition in this transition to cloud. Another interesting one I've had some conversations about recently, network-intensive workloads, something that's also overlooked. You've got this great application on-premise. You want to move part of that application to the cloud to leverage the scalability of the cloud for some sort of 3 tier web architecture. And you leave the database behind because the database is a little bit older, it's a little bit more challenging, it's a little more touchy then all of a sudden you have this network chatter going up and down your direct connect link. And that's not a cost that maybe you plan for. So moving the, moving the pieces of the application around between premise and cloud and even in different VPCs regions in the cloud drastically sometimes changes the amount of networking costs that you're going to incur. And you've got to be cognizant of that. You've got to be pay attention to that. Application inventory. And this is just simply, do you know what you have in the cloud? Do you know what applications are out there? Not the resources, not the, not the EBS volumes, not the instances, but do you know what applications are running on this stuff? And can you, re- can you link that back to the same business organization structure that you linked your account hierarchy to? Team knowledge is important as well. I ran into someone the other day, um, a great person, but they wanted to talk about EBS reservations. And for those of you who know about EBS reservations, there are no EBS reservations. And so kind of it was a dead giveaway that maybe there was a little more education that needed to go on for this individual before they could really be kind of self-sustaining in cloud financial management. So you want to kind of dig in on, does your team understand uh, what the different uh, pricing models and programs are? Do they understand what the impact is of turning up an X1 instance? Do they understand the impact of what provisioned IOPS means when you turn that provisioned IOPS knob all the way up? Right? Because I think a lot of people out there just need a little more education. So be cognizant of that in your, in your teams. The account hierarchy and the tagging is something that every enterprise builds their own jail. Right? So when you have these 200 accounts and you've had them for two years and you come in and you want to adjust and build maybe a chargeback model, but it doesn't quite match what your business has been set up for, or the tagging strategy as applied doesn't give you the granularity you need to report on you know, dev versus prod or department one versus department two, you've got a challenge there. So you've got to really analyze that, which also goes right back up there to automation and governance. How are you keeping that tagging hierarchy legit and and consistent as people are deploying? Financial rules and regulations, right? Let's think of the accounting team as we're thinking about our day-to-day operations, not just the technology teams and not just the lines of business, right? These people have to close the books every month, right? They have to pay the invoices, They have to amortize the RIs. They have to manage the chargeback. They have needs too, right? So let's make sure they understand the cloud economics and finance. Let's ask them what their needs are. How do they need to consume the financial data so they can approve the bill? How do they need to consume the financial data for 2018 planning, right? Invoice reconciliation, right? Who approves paying the bill? And then one big one that I think everyone needs to kind of be introspective on is how are you using chargeback or showback, or a new one that I heard of called shameback, right? To drive good behavior, right? Good citizen behavior with your cloud economics and finance, right? So once you've analyzed all these things, you can kind of identify where your gap is between how you want to be able to operate and what you can actually do today. Now you can start aligning these actions you're going to take, and you can kind of classify them. What's the most important thing we need to go do? Well, the most important thing you might need to go do today is buy a bunch of reservations, right? But second to that, it might be go renovate your entire tagging strategy. It might be bringing in some CICD and automation and, and infrastructure as code into your organization to give them more consistent control. But you've got to measure how difficult is it to do these tasks, how much disruption will these tasks cause in my different lines of business, and how should I then prioritize these so I can move, to, move through this remediation to a point where I have the capability to financially operate in the cloud? Now, once you're there, you're ready, right? It's time to take off. You have the actual capability to achieve the objectives you've set out to achieve. You've got your plans, your processes in place, people are educated, you've got orchestration and controls. Now, you're just doing day-to-day operations. And as we move into day-to-day operations, just a little flowchart of kind of what you need to do, you can do this, uh, Jason's going to come here and talk about how he does it you know, every five minutes, but other customers do this on an hourly basis, daily basis, weekly basis. You want to look at the data, financial data. You want to classify that data, quantify it, make a suggestion, take an action, measure that action, and then report on the outputs, Right? So let's dive into these a little bit, looking, right? So I I think of this as driving on the Autobahn. Driving 200 miles an hour on the Autobahn, you take your eye off the wheel, bad things can happen. If you're driving a $20 million annual cost in cloud, if you take your eyes off the spend, bad things can happen, right? You can shave off a full headcount's worth of spend from some mistakes, from some waste, right? From, From poor decision. So looking at the financial data frequently, looking for macro trends, how much compute did we use last month, how much compute are we using this month, and there's even a lot of well-known, or from my perspective, well-known problems that people run into. I mentioned some earlier, right, EBS snapshot growth, provisioned IOPS, uh, usage of different resources outside regions where you don't think they're going to be exposed to, that you can hone in on and look at and go bring your carrot and stick to your teams and say, hey, I found this problem for you, I'd like to have a conversation about it. So when you're going and you're looking at that data, you want to have that conversation with that technical responsible party or the financial responsible party, and you want to classify that. And I have this grid that I came up with, and it's all about, is the behavior, the financial data, the dollars and cents that are being used, did I expect to see this behavior of the data? Did I expect the EBS gro- you know, storage growth to increase 2x, 3x over the last 17 days? Right? And maybe I'm breaking that down by line of business versus looking at the whole company. Or is that unexpected? Right? So, expected things, right? You know, you're buying a reservation, right? That's good, right? You expect that costs are going to go down after you buy a reservation. Unexpected things that are also sometimes good AWS drops prices, right? Everyone likes waking up in the morning and finding out that AWS drops prices last night. The tricky part is when things are, you know, harmful or unexpected. So something that might be in, you know, expected and harmful is uh, you're doing a migration, and you're not moving as fast, and you know you're going to blow out your budget this month because you didn't move uh, as many servers, or it costs more, or something like that. But at least you can see it coming, you can report on it, and you can help re-forecast, right? Now you're the hero in the organization because you saw it coming, right? The really bad ones are the unexpected and harmful, right? Uncontrolled, unexpected cloud usage, missing deadlines, and even malicious cloud usage, right? But once you've quantified or once you've classified this, expected, unexpected, harmful or helpful, you can move into quantifying it. And when you're quantifying it, you're saying, okay, well, I see this behavior, right? And let's call it some storage, some increase in storage spend for line of business 17. And it's been going on for the last 17 days, and it looks suspicious, looks interesting. Well, you quantify that. You can go into the data and you can say that's five thousand dollars of money that's just gone. And every day this behavior continues, it's another $1,000 out the window, right? So now you can look at your fiscal year, and you can go to that technical responsible party or financial responsible party, and you can say, hey, I observed this behavior. I've quantified exactly how much money's already been flushed, and I can tell you that between now and the end of the fiscal year, if no action is taken, this is what's going to happen, and oh, by the way, after having that discussion on harmful, helpful, expected, unexpected, and what that technical responsible party is doing, you can go in and actually make suggestions on what to do next. So you can come in and you can suggest, uh, once you classify and quantify that maybe you want to, you know, turn off that script that accidentally grows the EBS snapshots, or maybe you not want to use that X1 instance type because it's just too much memory and you don't need it, right? Um, maybe you want, it's a little more enhanced kind of suggestion on, Hey, listen, I see that you're using a bunch of MySQL databases, and that's great, but have you heard of this Athena service? It might be a little bit slower, but if your application or your customers can tolerate it, we might be able to cut your costs in half by leveraging Athena instead of rolling out MySQL databases. right? And that's when you might roll back into doing another little business case to identify if that has value to the organization. But what's important about suggesting is, is taking the action right? And this is where the stick comes in. You brought the carrot in, you've got the business case, you've got the suggestion. Now you've got the stick because you've quantified exactly how much cost they're going to waste if they don't take action. And you can measure that every day. All right. When they do take action, you want to go in and you want to measure it after the fact. If you walked in with a business case and you said, if you do this, you will save $50,000 for the rest of the fiscal year. Five days after that, you know, responsible parties taken action, go back in and measure it. Make sure you're right right say hey it's really going to be 48,000 or hey even better it's going to be 55,000 right save those up start stacking those business cases up because at the end of the day it's not coming in and saying ah oh, we bought 6 million dollars of reservations and it saves us 2 million dollars a year it's we observed 175 places to save a few thousand dollars for the rest of the year and we were able to t- you know to work with those teams to take advantage of 100 out of those 175 Here's the actual measured results of those actions we took. And also, oh, by the way, the 75 that we didn't take action on, here's why. Someone didn't take action for, let's just say, to be nice, a good reason or a bad reason. A good reason is there's a blocker that we can identify that we can then start to work on removing. The bad reasons are because sometimes people are lazy and that'll work itself out (laughs) in its own way. So in summary, before I hand things over to Jason, because Jason has been doing this for quite a long time, This methodology of building your strategy and building your financial operational muscle is what I think is really important for the enterprise right now, and it leads to this concept of what we call financial agility, because things are changing in the cloud all the time, and things are changing in your business all the time. The technology is changing, new features are coming out, merger and acquisitions are happening, turnover in your organization, entry into new markets and it's affecting the financials that are coming out of the cloud. And you need to be able to use this data to make great business decisions. So I want to bring up customer uh, Jason Fuller from here. Jason's been doing, uh, Jason's been running large-scale cloud enterprise uh, and business, multi-billion dollar businesses for, for many, many years now. So he's in a position where he's done this at least three times in three different very large organizations. And he's had to go through strategy and operations as he worked with those companies. So I'll let Jason take the floor here and tell you a little bit of his story as well. Thank you, sir.
1: Thank you, David. How's everybody doing today? Good? Great job on David's part, explaining the methodology, making sure we all understand what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly. Um, I work for Here Technologies. Uh, Here Technologies is uh, one of the, if not the leading location services company in the world. Uh, we 'll get into that i 'll do the obligatory marketing slides i don 't know if my marketing manager is in the, in the room, but thank you very much. Um, but uh, today i 'm going to take the abstract and give you some on the ground tips i 'm going to work through kind of the things that we we do uh, at here and as much as I can tell you um, publicly and then obviously, my email's there. feel free to email me if you have one on one questions i 'm happy to take direct messages. Um, I started working here in 2016, I'm the head of cloud management and operations. Um, We are uh, 8,000 plus people, uh, 200 offices globally, based in, uh, headquartered I should say, in Amsterdam. Uh, I work in Burlington, Massachusetts, we have a large group in Chicago. Um, Some of you may know us uh, as Navtech, some of you may know us as Nokia. Uh, We were part of both of those organizations for a long time. We started making maps in 1985. So we've been doing that for a long time. Um, but today, we're, we're talking about uh, megacities and artificial intelligence and on-demand economy. And you know, those of you guys who watched that 60 minutes years ago where Jeff Bezos stood up and said, everything's being delivered by drones, and we all went, <laughs> that's crazy. I'll shoot the drone, right? That's what I said. Um, it, it, it happens, right? It's happening today. Um, we are going to see 3D maps, and for that, location is a really key part, right? So for here... We drive a lot of, of three-dimensional uh, you know, satellite imagery, um, big data, you know, pick a buzzword, machine learning. Right, It's all part of what we do. And so um, the reason we have to do that is because we are running uh, the maps for four out of every five cars on the road, um, probably running the content in your automobile that you drive every day if you drive. Um, we deal with all sorts of mapping technologies, right? We're the, we are the map behind Bing Maps. Uh, we work with Amazon very closely. Obviously, Amazon Web Services as well. Uh, but we put up uh, petabytes of data by doing this. And so our cloud costs are not in the in the smaller numbers. They're in the much larger numbers. Um, but what we do to control those cloud costs really has little to do with 700,000 probe data points per second coming off of BMW 7 series. It has more to do with how do we maintain every dollar and we make sure that value proposition that Dave was talking about is there, right? How do we make sure that we push um, good practices into engineering, right? And we'll get into a little bit of that. So um, as a large customer, since 2011, we've, we've been on a cloud-first strategy, right? So we still have a ton of data centers, um, but we've, we've shut down a lot of those data centers, eight, eight large-scale data centers with three closures last year, so it's not a quick journey. You know, as an eight-year AWS customer, you grow a lot of um, uh, lime. You grow a lot of mold. I don't know how you want to look at it. We like to look at it in a very positive way, right, the savings. But it's, it's true. It's organic, and it, it sits there, right? Your S3 buckets, nobody's touched, has petabytes of data. It costs you tons of money. Multi-factor part upload failures. I don't know if, if you guys haven't dealt with that problem yet. That's when you upload something to AWS. It doesn't complete successfully. They charge you for the unsuccessful object, but you can't actually touch it until you delete it. So um, those little things matter. They matter at the small scale. They matter at the large scale. One of the things that I've done with the three enterprises um, that I've been in over the last six years is looking at the difference between AWS's strategy for developers versus the enterprise reality. Right? Um, I don't have an IAM user on every one of my 500 accounts. I shouldn't. I'm not really supposed to. That, that would be a security risk, right? Um, no one in my organization should. And using tools like CloudAbility um, allow me to spread it out to those folks in the room who don't have an IAM user, don't know about IAM users, don't care to know about IAM users. Uh, the engineering team that's running your DevOps doesn't want you to have a user, or even a user someplace else to assume a role into their account. That's, that kind of breaks that. Trust that, that, that abstraction that David was talking about, where you have to have a group of people that are accountable. And if I have a user in your account, how are you 100% accountable for what you do in your account if I spin things up on my behalf, you know, to, say, change something or do something? So it's not about control. Um, it's more about, you know, you can fail fast and fail often, as the devs like, but as the enterprise goes, there's project managers, there's program managers, there's, there's people in, in global teams that, don't run, that do run 24 by 7 but don't need the cloud on all the time, right? And so you have to deal with the difference between these two things because AWS would love to take your money. They never pay a refund, so um, they'll go through, you know, you, like, <laughs> I had a case, right? Redshift cluster went up, was up for the weekend, cost $175,000. Didn't need to be up intern didn't mean to put it up, and he did, and we didn't get that money back, right? And had we had some controls in place on that account, we could have stopped that, we could have avoided that. So be really crisp about how you, how you deal with this, and from there the teams will appreciate the service that you provide. So, um, And it doesn't take a top-down approach, but it does help to have top-of-the-organization support. Uh, I, I enjoy that at Here uh, Technologies. But um, this This is what I call the BC architecture. In this case, BC is uh, before CloudAbility. Um, We have applications that run lots of Java. We have open tools. We use the Kerr file, the cost utilization report. Um, If you haven't opened that up yet from AWS, it's intense. Uh, For us, it's uh, 150 gigabyte uh, CSV. Can't open it on much else but AWS, so I pay them to open their own bills. We, we consume about um, 200 um, million lines uh, on that file every day. So it helps a lot. The DBR is a little bit higher, right? It rolls up operations. But that file will give you kind of what your bill should be, right? And so you should be able to do just the, you know, let's say it's a dollar, right? You should be able to open the DBR the day after, what is it, the sixth of the month, right? Because they take six days to balance their own bills. Um, and it should match the PDF that showed up in your inbox, right? But they send you a PDF for every single reserve instance you create. They send you a PDF for every account. They send you a PDF for every credit, every credit memo, every service. Every sur- yeah. Um, 7,000 PDFs later, and I have my awesome woman, Joan, in the audience. Hi, Joan. She handles all the PDFs. That has to be balanced, right? You're an enterprise. You, ha- you can't just pay bills. I mean, it's not free money. This has to have some consumer responsibility. So bill split for us would take their DBR, and every time it would drop two to three times a day, split it up. We put S3 bucket policies in place on that bucket. You join from an account. You get to see your part of the bill, right? It's a simple, it's a simple way to do that, but it gives the team the raw data, right? So if they don't, can't go to the console, don't want to go to the console, they want to have the raw data, they can go get it. Um, the lots of Java part is then taking all of that and breaking it apart and moving it around and doing a validation against a, a describe of instances, a describe of S3, telling me that I did have those things up in the cloud. In fact, they didn't just put an extra $40 million on my account, which AWS has done that to me, too. Um, and then open tools for visibility, right? If you don't want to afford Splunk, it's understandable, it's expensive. Um, Tableau, not so expensive, same complexity. You know, ICE, for any of us who have been working for a long time in this industry, was very popular. Um, you have to have a way to give the people a view, right? So that, that for us is there. But, you know, ultimately what it ended up with, people spent money in AWS. It lands in a bill, lands in a file. We break all that down, push it out into Amazon S3, push it out into Excel, and then push it out to all the people in finance who need to see this. But they're, I mean, it's zeros and ones on the right side for them have dollar signs in front of it, but they don't understand the difference between box usage on a C3 extra large versus box usage on a a T2 micro. The engineering guys understand it. They went through the idea of, well, I need to produce a cloud that's performant, right? I'm going to just pick the biggest box because I'm part of an enterprise, and, you know, come find me for that one of 100,000 instances, and we'll have a debate. But they're the guys on the left who are just pushing the buttons, so that Excel file eventually comes back around through their finance people. But it's a long cycle, right? This takes a couple of months to deal with the bill. You know, I think we're, we're still not final on our October numbers, and we're just about to hit December, right? So this, this is the type of kind of churn that, that ends up happening when you get bigger and bigger and bigger, even if your organization isn't growing, your AWS is growing. So what did we do with Cloudability? Um, with Cloudability... And we went through a a really deep trial with CloudAbility. Uh, My my team that I manage is made up of engineers, analysts, and project managers. Um, We we are an arm of finance in the sense that we produce files for finance, but we're not finance people. We're all certified. I'm a certified SA. Um, What we found by using CloudAbility versus their competitors, to remain nameless, uh, is that the API that they have, the ability for us to do the good engineering work we had to do to make that right side happen faster actually produced value for us. My team could spend less time analyzing whether an RI is needed or not. You know, we centralized our RI purchasing. One of the great things you can do with a curve file, just as a side tangent, is you can actually trace your ARNs throughout your organization so you can tell who used the AWS RI and actually create a cross-charge on that. So now you get 100% of the value instead of that, well, it floated away, I paid for it, somebody else used it. Right? That doesn't work well in the enterprise between business units when someone else pays for it, but you get to use it. So CloudAbility helps there. Um, we've decreased the amount of Java that we need because now I'm, I'm consuming, um, for my team, all of these files. But for the rest of the organization, they're using the front end of CloudAbility. So Now they're getting a login to CloudAbility through an Active Directory SSO connection. So there's no username and password problems. I log in with my same credentials. I can now create reports. I can now see usage from CloudWatch data, which they would never have been allowed to see CloudWatch before, because I'm not going to give them an IAM user. You're in finance. You don't get an IAM user. You're in finance. But now with CloudAbility, you can. Right? You can go see what, who actually used this. Why was it being used? How much was it using? And maybe you don't understand it at first. But as David said, you start to produce the questions. You start to produce the matrix of if it's helpful, should I talk to engineering? Should I talk to the people in the organization running the service and say, why C38 extra large is instead of T2 micros? I don't know what that means, but just start to explain it to me, right? You can have collaboration. Um, what we want to do from here is actually produce more integrations. So now, instead of just using any Java, is to allow CloudAbility to consume all of the billing files. Allow me to have my SSO integration. Use my financial plan data, right? Because one of the things that's great about their tool is I might feel really good when I go home at night as an engineer because I only spent ten dollars today. But maybe you only budgeted $8. Yeah? It doesn't matter if you have a million-dollar budget or an eight-dollar budget. It matters if you stayed under budget, right, in most organizations that I've worked for. So the financial plan data coming into CloudAbility now gives me a, a huge lift, because I can actually produce a number that says, you did an okay job, but if you don't change this behavior, you're going to get over budget. You're going to be in the red, and we're going to have a conversation with probably at some point the CFO, but definitely with the finance you know, cost center owner, um, very quickly. The other side of this is we want to take out of CloudAbility all of this great data too. So... We, uh, one of the points David made was to automate, right? Um, We, I I like the guys at Capital One, so I'll I'll give them a little plug. We use Cloud Custodian. If you haven't looked at that project on GitHub, you should go check it out. Um, Very basic, very small app. We run it on Lambda. Every 30 minutes, a little Lambda guy shows up in every one of my hundreds of accounts, runs for 300 milliseconds, shuts down, costs my teams $1.80 per month to do that. And in that 300 milliseconds, it checks that all your tags are in the right places, checks that you have tag compliance. If you don't, it marks the instance for delete. It goes in and it says, what, what else can I tell you? Well, I can tell you that this instance, VPCs, for example, you're above 80% of your soft limit. Put a ticket to AWS and lift the soft limit. So we've removed the soft limit problem automatically every 30 minutes. And, and the other thing we want to do with it is actually pull out the right sizing data and say, hey, I know the CPU is at the floor 0% every night at 6 p.m. So at 7 p.m., send a stop command to this instance. And I know that every day at 8 30, the CPU spikes. So go ahead and send it, you know, an order to start at 8 a.m., right? And only do it if the tag for the environment is development. Don't do it to the production stuff. And if I start coming in at 8 a.m., change it to 7.30, right, because it'll stay at the YAML operating order that I give it. So I want to reach into CloudAbility and say, what are the right recommendations, right, which they have a recommendation engine, which is really good, and it's really accurate, and it tells you how much you would save if you didn't use the AC38XLarge, you use the T2Large, and pull that out into these enterprise systems like Aptio and PeopleSoft and Workday. You know, the other the other things the enterprise depends on, that when you get to a certain size in AWS, it becomes your most expensive, longest pole in the tent. But as David pointed out, if it's giving you business value, then it's all all good, right? But no, it's still $10, but you have an $8 budget. So you still have to figure out how these other systems, how these other teams that don't know what the cloud is, they just know that we run technology and we run it on the cloud, they need to understand it too. So this is what we'd like to do from there, and really, Standardizing in this way allows the organization to really have a valuable and fruitful conversation. And it drives um, the problem away from a governance team. So as a governance team, we decide hibernation is good. We decide that our eyes are good. We decide that S3 buckets open to the world are bad. These are things that we can produce centralized management of. But as an organization, everybody starts to lift their education level up. And and tools like CloudAbility allow you to do that. it's a good. It's a good way to kind of share that painful, yeah, 160,000 dollar Redshift cluster over the weekend experience uh, with many more people. <laughs> so, um, Redshift, we we like I said, we pay them to look at our bill. Uh, so we're going to produce more Redshift. We'll probably still pay them more to look at our bill. But it's now it's now a conversation around you know s- queries that I care about, not tableau boards and splunk indexes and you know paying more to see the bill right so uh... with that i'll say thank you my emails on the bottom please please come see me here at the show and i'll turn it back to david perfect thank you very much jason
0: i appreciate you. that
1: so we've got a booth obviously
0: at the expo and if you see in your chairs uh, we put out some flyers you can come by and get a book that we wrote it's a follow-on to a book that we had out last year It's been written by our co-founder, our CTO, and I even had an opportunity to contribute to it. So it gives a good background on kind of current state of cost optimization strategies, methodologies, and things you can do. Uh, At this point, we're done. I'd love to open the floor up for if there's any questions. Uh, Feel free to ask. Otherwise, get the hell out. (laughs)
1: Uh, I have a team... I have a team of, um, (laughs) let me do my head count, seven. Uh, Four engineers, two project managers, uh, business analysts, that sort of size. But we have over 2,000 IAM users in the organization that are not bot service users. So we have a huge AWS cloud operations generally, but our team really sits in a center spot to say, okay, yeah, let's look at that data across the entire. The entire you know, fleet. And then we produce those reports as David was pointing out and give those reports to the people who can actually swing bigger sticks than I can.
0: Yeah. When you start passing that three, four million dollar year total spend, it's my experience, it's it's a headcount of a person to start looking at this data and doing this kind of work. Not a not something that you pull a financialist and you say, hey, you're responsible for the cloud optimization, or you pull a technologist and you say, you're also responsible for the cloud financial. It's just, that's the time you really need to dedicate a headcount to it. And then you get into the $10, $15, 20000000 million range, you need a team, yeah. right. I,
1: And then when it goes per month, you need, you need to have <laughs> automation, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yep. no problem. Sir? Sure. Uh, <laughs> well, why CloudAbility? I think um, the big thing was we, we saw the API was much more robust. We wanted to do automation engineering. We, we really bought the tool. For what's under the hood, but we needed to be able to give people access to a really rich you know, UI to, to do what they need to do as well. Um, we, we evaluated our own internal. We said if I took my tools that I had and you know, made it into a product and, and went after it really hard, how much would I spend, and how many years would I do that, and how many engineers would I need? Um, we also looked at some of the other you know, top vendors in the space, you know, Cloud Health Technologies, Cloud Checker, um, and AWS directly. And to be honest, you know, and I'm, there's no knock to Scott Chandler's organization, inside of Cost Explorer, they, they focus on the dev, right? So the reality of the enterprise is devs are not the only people who care about AWS. And so even though they can give you an API, my finance person's not going to know what that is, right? They're not going to be able to do anything with it. And I'm not going to give them an IAM user because that breaks my security you know, posture. So these guys, they work, I should say, these, they work off of a um, really good role-based security model. So for every new account that we pop out, gets a CloudAbility role, um, immediately gets logged into CloudAbility, puts a new, new account in CloudAbility, and it also drives into CloudAbility integration with our, um, our views. So we've completely automated our view process with CloudAbility. So now every new user and every new account immediately is in CloudAbility, and they can immediately start using the tool. And their views are only locked to what they're responsible for. So it's not like I had to share everybody's laundry with everyone. I could say, you're responsible for automotive, you're responsible for drone, you're responsible for maps. And it became a very easy thing. Now, that takes a little bit of back-end IT integration with your, your internal IAM Active Directory grouping and roles, but it's all possible with their tool, which is really what we liked. Does that help?
0: Perfect. All right. If there's no other questions, enjoy the rest of the show. Thanks, everybody.